my name's Tom Walker. Welcome to the Christmas edition of That'll Be The Day. In this podcast, we'll hear from a visually impaired woman who's had an extraordinary life. But before we hear from Penny Melville Brown, if you like the music at the start of this podcast, it's a track called That'll Be The Day by the Liverpool band The Vow. And as always, we'll be hearing a track by The Vow at the end of this podcast. To find out which one it is, stay tuned. Penny Melville Brown has known success and disaster throughout her life and has demonstrated a great deal of resilience in responding to the challenges that have confronted her. Before we hear from Penny, however, a huge thank you to Glynis Gillam from Blind Veterans who put me in touch with Penny. As a former naval officer, Penny uses the charity's excellent services. Anyway, I joined Penny in her home while she was baking a Christmas cake. Do you want me to stir it? Go on, if you can feel up to it. Well, I'm not a cook, and I have to be honest, Penny, and say, I mean, I I can reheat things, and I can do curries and chilli con carne, but cakes are a little bit beyond my pay grade, generally, so... Can I tell you, you could make... We've now moved to Penny's atrium, which was a present to herself for a certain birthday. We won't say which one it, it was. (laughs) <laughs> but it's lovely to meet you thank you Tom, it's lovely um, how important is Christmas to you Penny? oh, really important you know I'm preparing cakes I made mincemeat oh, weeks ago I, my fruit in, has been in soak for the Christmas puddings and the Christmas cakes for about three months um, we'll have about three Christmas trees here there'll be Christmas stockings at the end of the bed a proper Christmas lunch um, I've already been wrapping Christmas presents. I think I've bought them all now. Just need to tartle them around and do all the decorative bits, and I'm getting on with it. There is an art to wrapping presents, which I haven't mastered. Have you mastered it as a visually impaired? Well, actually, the most important bit about that art is actually to use the wrapping paper the right way out. You round the outside and then you cut across. Okay. Oh, okay. And that's called folding in. Right. And what you're doing is I'm doing it with a silicon spatula. You've had the most extraordinary life. I mean, anybody who knows anything about you at all will know that, um, you know, you've kind of, you've courted disaster and, and success almost in equal measure. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Tell me first of all about your childhood, Penny, because you were fully sighted then, weren't you? Oh, yes. Yes. I was going to say I had a childhood like anyone else. But obviously, not everybody else is fit and well throughout all their childhood. But I did school, I went off to university. Um, I was, um, what I really wanted to do was architecture at one stage and then law, but I gave up and did English literature, which was actually, in comparison, quite boring. Then I had um, a year, sort of free and gratis, because they offered me a teacher training um, postgraduate course. And I did that, and I decided that was definitely not what I wanted to do. But I was supposed to be getting married just about then, but my fiancé was killed in a car crash. That's awful. So it was awful. It was awful. So I decided I'd do something completely different. And you know how in the papers, I don't know whether they still have it in the papers these days, um, they have lots of adverts for jobs and things. So I applied to anything that might be vaguely interesting. So I did banking, retail food, um, advertising, publishing, all sorts of different things. And and I found one for the Royal Navy. And I hadn't realised at the time, but it was designed for men. But anyway, I applied. And the long and short of it is that um, I joined the Royal Navy. In those days, it was the Women's Royal Naval Service. 
as a direct entry wren, which meant you did a, a quick shake and bake course at HMS Dauntless, which was in Nissen Huts back then. Then um, a bit of time at um, Portsmouth to learn about the Navy, just three months. Then I went straight off to Dartmouth to do my training uh, as an officer. Good so Lord, I was how, an how officer. Posh. It how was, posh. it was, frightfully posh. And we even had practice cocktail parties, so you learned how to talk to people properly at a cocktail. Oh, what did the work involve? What, what, well, does, a, what does an officer drinking. do? Well, you were mainly drinking. Did, you, did you have any official tasks apart from drinking? Well, I, I, my first job was in Naples, where I was doing NATO intelligence. And then I went on and did home defence and war planning near Portsmouth. Um, I went up to the Ministry of Defence and I was in charge of public relations for the Wrens and then the Quorns, which is the Naval Nursing Service. I ran the University Royal Naval Units um, and then I was sitting at lunch one day and somebody said, what we really need is a woman barrister. Uh, yeah, well, I, I thought about law a long time ago. So I said, oh, I can do that, as one does. And in the Navy, one is, you know, always a blagger. So I said, yes, I could do that. And so the long and short of that was that I ended up, after a year of academic law in London, then a year at bar school, then some time in pupillage, as going back into the Navy, or going back to work in the Navy, as the first woman barrister. Within about a year of me um, doing, starting that in Portsmouth, um, my eye start started to deteriorate. I went down to Plymouth as a staff legal advisor, and by then my right eye was really being very tricky. So I was, went up to Moorfields and they put me on these enormous doses of steroids. And the upshot was it was either die because my kidney and um, liver were, were, were dying or give up my right eye. So that wasn't much of a choice. Um, so I did all of that and staggered back to the Navy after 14 months. Um, and it was a stagger. I could barely walk because of the effect of the um, drugs. Um, and I took up another job, um, again in Portsmouth, um, and then my left eye started to go. So then I had to give up driving, but I was still working in uniform in the Navy. Um, I was promoted to commander, and um, I, had my, I was sort of looking after headquarters for a short time, and then I went on to another job doing naval personnel and strategy. Um, but by that time, I was using a white cane in the dockyard, in uniform, and the security guards used to fish me out of the bushes because they're, they're not really lit for very visually impaired people. Um, and so I'd get lost and they'd fish me out and send me back on my way. How did your colleagues um, react to the fact that, you, you know, you were losing your sight, you were, you know, visually impaired using a white cane? Did they accommodate you? Were they just kind of, oh, well, that's just Penny? Um, all of that. Yes, they were, they were extremely kind. Because, of course, the um, armed forces are not subject to the employment elements of the Equality Act. Um, so they had no obligation to keep me as a disabled person. And what about the Navy? What about the top brasses, I think we should call them? Um, I think 
I think everybody was tried to be accommodating, but when you're in a service or any of the armed forces and they're used to young, fit, active people and to have somebody who is clearly not that was just quite strange for them. But they got me um, screen magnification, which I could use in those days. Um, I had an outstanding warrant officer who helped me. Um, you know, and he wasn't a support worker. We were working together, but he, you know, just did that extra bit to, to make life easier for me. Um, but for me, though, they were clearly finding it difficult and I wasn't going to get the promotion jobs I wanted and they were finding it more and more difficult. So in the end, I was medically discharged as a war pensioner. From a psychological point of view, how did you feel? I mean, did, was it something you were just able to deal with or, or were you quietly traumatised while trying to be competent? Um, I think the most important thing for my whole life was how the Royal Navy supported me and allowed me to work when um, I was very visually impaired and allowed me to prove primarily to myself that I could still do not only a job but a bloody good job and be really successful at it and that gave me the confidence to think I can do anything and when I was medically discharged um, I was worried about being able to pay my mortgage because you know I, I wasn't really very au fait with what benefits I might get and um, I, I was worried that I would lose my home and that was really important to me. So I decided I'd try and find a job and getting a job seemed to be impossible. I talked to some of the ex-service charities and they, they had no idea, they had no concept of how to help me. Um, and so in the end I decided I was going to dedicate the rest of my working life to helping other disabled people get back to work. Because, of course, most people with a disability acquire that during their working lives. And we're talking 70% of disabled people during their working lives. So I decided I would become a disability consultant. Hence disability dynamics, I think it's called, exactly, isn't it? Mm. Exactly, exactly. Before and we talk about that, can I just ask you, you mentioned there about the high rate of unemployment among visually impaired and people with other disabilities. Yes. You've been a fully sighted, fully able-bodied person working yes. in the Navy. Can you understand why employers might be a little bit nervous over the idea of, of employing a disabled person or a visually impaired person? I, I can understand it entirely because I've worked in that field for over 20 years and it's fear and ignorance and the fear is mainly of embarrassing themselves or looking stupid, looking foolish. They don't know how to talk to disabled people, they don't know how to approach them physically, um, they, do, they just don't know what to do and it's so much easier just to walk away. Are things improving now? I mean, what, in 2022, 27-ish years, I think, after the first DDA? Are things getting better? No. I feel myself <laughs> as if things are actually getting slightly worse because employers have almost learnt how to fireproof themselves against legal action. What would your thoughts be on that? Um, I think attitudes towards disability come from the very top. And that's a policy level government level, um, also um, at the top of these big organisations, they 
as I was saying to you about in the Navy, people had very little exposure to disabled people. And so this ignorance kicks in and they see us as risky, risky financially and all the rest of it. Now this is always the interesting bit when you can't see is getting all this sloppy mixture <laughs> into, into the, the container. Yeah. So, when did you set up disability uh, dynamics? How long has it been going for? It, it started in, it, it, it opened in uh, 2000 and I closed it in 2021 I think. And tell me a bit more about the work you did then, because you've talked about policy advice. Yeah. Did you work with individual disabled people or were you working at a slightly more macro level? Um, in the early days, I was doing much more strategic stuff with government departments um, and, and the public and the private sector. Um, but I was also doing a whole range of public appointments. So I was on the board of HMRC, of the Employment Tribunal System, um, I was chair of the Learning and Skills Council for Hampshire and the Isle of Wight, all sorts of stuff. A War Pensions Committee, I chaired that. Um, so one was endeavouring to exert influence um, at that policy level and try and change how they actually wrote their employment policies, as simple as that. What was your reaction towards you from people in places like HMRC and the Employment Tribunal? Were you treated as an equal or did you feel that in some way you might have been patronised? How did they react to you? <laughs> Not many people patronise me. No, I've gathered long. that. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I, I'm a thoroughly competent, capable person and I can express myself, I hope, clearly. Um, and I have sound... Um, judgment and I am well researched and very knowledgeable. I think I was talking to somebody uh, a few weeks ago and my three principles are competence, confidence and care when you're looking at your profession. The three C's. Yeah and if you cannot be competent in your job go and learn, go and study, go and get experience because nobody's going to succeed if they're not competent. How did disability dynamics evolve over the 20 odd years of its life? Well, I was invited to become chairman of a little not-for-profit organisation called Business Ability, and they were promoting self-employment for disabled people. And actually, I'd also been doing some speaking for the European Blind Union. I was actually in Cyprus, and I'd done some other at world blind union events and what it, not just speaking but actually listening to other people and what became very clear to me was that blind people were working all over the world but they were primarily self-employed so i took that and went off to business ability and i liked what they were doing but they were not really making um big impact because they were so tiny and I was talking to Margaret Hodge, as one drops, you know... Uh, yeah, a former MP, I mean, yeah, I think, well, she, she still is then, an MP, maybe. Yeah, but. She was then the minister, I think she may be... Isn't she in the House of Lords now? She may know. well be, yes. I can't remember. Yeah. Anyway, she was then the Minister for Employment. And she said, what you nearly need to do is pilot this and demonstrate that it works. And um, because this little not-for-profit really didn't have the financial background to do it, Disability Dynamics did. I created the model for the Work For Yourself programme and I ran it in Derbyshire 
across the county and then a couple of the councils up there wanted me to go back and run longer term projects and in the end I was running Work For Yourself in Derbyshire, um, uh, mainly in Chesterfield and Bolsover district and we were hugely successful. We had a 40% success rate so anybody who was eligible who rang us up said I want to have a go at this um, of those 40% either started a business, got a job, or went into vocational training. And that is comparable with the very, you know, anything that DWP. But then I had um, a big ding-dong with DWP um, and access to work because they arbitrarily decided that I didn't um, need as much support as I had in the past for the last 15 years mm. can you imagine it well i've had issues i'll talk, talk to you about that in a moment with access to it but anyway so um they in those days when i declined to accept their decision i got no support worker so i i was unable to work except i had i was then funding my support worker f- from my business um and the business we'd always kept my sort of income from the business fairly modest Um, So this was not going to be viable, and they did not understand that if you're going to take on a contract, you need to be sure you've got viability for three years or whatever, the duration of that contract. And so I decided uh, that I would start a a new venture, and this this was Baking Blind. And the whole thing about Baking Blind was not to help other visually impaired people or disabled people to cook. My goodness, they can either do it or they can't, or they can learn. It was absolutely about trying to demonstrate that disabled people of any ilk can do nearly anything. Um, And I was just kicking off doing a few Christmas cakes, funnily enough. Um, And then I got this email that's saying, would you like to win $25,000? And who would say no? Well, not me. And it came from this organisation in San Francisco who picked up some of my YouTube videos and my, you know, rather sketchy attempts to promote what I was doing. And the long and the short of it was that I won the prize. Before um, I forget, because my little brain doesn't hold things for very long, I wanted to ask you about access to work, and we'll come back to Baking Blind in a moment. Um, A lot of certainly visually impaired people, and disabled people actually, of my acquaintance, complain bitterly about access to work. What are your thoughts? How could it be improved? The the process is pretty dreadful. Um, The people who make decisions have very little knowledge of disability. They have absolutely no knowledge of the business world. So if you're an entrepreneur, as I am, um, they have no cognizance of that whatsoever. Um, And somebody who's writing policies, strategies, does not understand the totality of the employment world. For my case, it was almost impossible to find out how to elevate my complaint. Mm. Um, I eventually discovered the independent case examiner and took my complaint to them. I eventually took my complaint from them to the Parliamentary and Health Service Ombudsman, oh, yeah. and my complaint actually took seven years. What was the outcome? Going back to outcomes, um, pitiful, pitiful. Um, it may it took n- really no recognition of the fact that I'd been forced to close my business. 
So this is just going to go into the oven. I've put it on a tray because it's a silicon pan. Let's go back to baking <laughs> blind. Let's yes. go back now to baking blind. I don't normally do this. Normally my podcasts were much more organised, you know, in how we do them. This but this is, is great. I love, I love this. This is, this is kind of the Christmas randomness that I, that, that I like. So baking blind then, you won your prize. And yeah, this what, is the Christmas ramble, I think. Yeah, this is, a, this is not a podcast anymore. No, we've turned this into a Christmas <laughs> ramble. You won your prize. What happened after that? Um, so, um, I went off to San Francisco, so I flew over to San Francisco, um, and during all the time, this took about six months to get, get to that stage, um, I was making more videos, and I used my nephew Toby, who is um, a really very excellent illustrator and videographer, um, and just happened to be available, and he gave up um, oh, two months of his time, his earning time, to come with me round the world. And so he and I um, met up in San Francisco and we started going to professional chefs, home cooks, anyone who'd responded because I'd sent emails to everybody I know all over the world saying, you know, would you help me do this baking blind thing? And it, so that's why it was a completely random selection of people. How would you compare the reaction to you as a visually impaired person around the world um, in, in the different countries you went to? Um, I think with the sighted chefs, and so, you know, that these might be home cooks or professionals, most of them are terrified of having a blind person in their kitchen. <laughs> and understandably, you know, because they've got all these pre, pre you know, the, 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 these sort of fantasies. Um, but once I was there doing things, chatting with them... Did they give you like a guided tour of the kitchen, say, right, OK, this is here, this is there, or did you just do that yourself? We just got on with it, really. Right. Once no they... faffing about. No, no. And are you continuing to make videos under the auspices of Baking Blind now? Um, I haven't for a while because of COVID, actually. Mm. Um, but also we came back and um, I, I was in France for a while and I'll tell you about that in a minute. Yes, I was going to but ask I, you about France. But I'm also doing, um, I, I've been doing, throughout COVID, I've been doing monthly um, online cooking demos for other visually impaired people. Um, I've written the book, um, you know, you can have the t-shirt. So I, I, I'm keeping myself active on that. Um, How's the book gone? I mean, have, have people, has it flown off the shelves? How, how's it? How's it, uh, it was just self-published. So oh, right, brilliant. I, 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 I suspect it's not rushing off the shelves yet, but, you know, your listeners are very welcome. Welcome to buy it. Yeah. Welcome it, to buy is it. Is it on Amazon or somewhere? It's on Amazon. I thought it might be. And it's on Kindle. Oh, even better. Um, the joy of the Kindle one, yeah, where they've both got links to all the videos, so if you haven't got the book, get it on Kindle, click on the links, and you can watch Penny yeah. doing all her cooking. Now, I want to ask you about France as well, because you were over in France, and I think, if I remember correctly from the things I've read, you had quite an interesting, if not difficult, time over there. I'm told I'd been there for a week, but basically I was in a car accident after a week. Um, and I was in a coma for six weeks Good Lord. in intensive care for two months um, and then in a rehabilitation hospital in France for another three months. I broke my C2 vertebra Good Lord. and that's one right at the top of your neck um, which is you know one of the really important ones mm. for whether you live or die um, and 
they couldn't um, do a surgical intervention because I had so many other, I had broken all the ribs on one side and my sternum and I had internal injuries. They couldn't turn me over to do the surgery. So therefore they just had to put me into a, a, a sort of fibreglass. I don't think they are fibreglass. I know what you mine. mean though. Yeah. Um, hard plastic um, neck brace. Um, and that's what I wore for, for months. Um, and so the only way they could manage me, because I, I was intubated as well, um, and so I had all these pipes going up my nose for oh, oxygen. God. I'm feeling um, a bit queasy. <laughs> well, um, I had awful nightmares about it because I was obviously aware that I had all these tubes going into me. Let's lighten the mood a little bit now. Christmas, then. You've told us, you've given us some idea as to what you're likely to do. I mean, has Christmas always been important to you? Yes. I, I come from a big family, um, so I have four brothers. And so Christmas has always been fun. Um, and wherever I've been in the world, I've celebrated Christmas and made it special. So from a visual perspective, yes. what will the Christmas dinner look like? Will it be quite decorative, or, um, do you think? Um, I, I hope it's hot and it actually lands exactly on the plate. <laughs> <laughs> will there be a glass of vino with it, any wine oh. or anything like that? Yes, yes, I, I think there might be a bottle of sparkling wine somewhere. Do you hear that? <laughs> that is Alexa telling you that the, the Christmas cake is nearly ready. Yes, it's smelling a bit hot, actually. It's smelling very, very good indeed. If it's a bit brown, mm. we'll just dismiss that bit, OK? I'm just going to come over here and I've got my magic talking thermometer. So I'm going to put it into the middle, not push it all the way down, give it a pink. That's a bit depressing, 27. 27 what you want with a cake or bread is at least 90 degree. So I think this is just a bit underdone. Needs so again, a bit longer. Needs a bit longer in the oven. So there you go, we'll leave Penny in her kitchen there with the cake, but I can assure you it turned out fine. But for those of you who are concerned about my waistline, you needn't worry, I didn't get any of it at all. Now, if you want to find out more about Penny, her recipes or book, you can do so online at pennymelvillebrown.com. That's pennymelvillebrown.com. Okay, so which vow track have I chosen? Well, it had to be this one at Christmas, didn't it? Peace in our time. Today The cool winds of dawn Faced me out I couldn't beat the countdown At last Without grace I've learned how to lose I'm on attack It brings me back to you I don't know But I'm told that the truth Is stranger than fiction An ominous, anonymous message We'll miss Can a Jesus freak speak with no obvious conviction? I'll take it from you, I'm part of this Did you ever dream of peace in our time? You couldn't keep your people in 